next hard saying. And because it's um, always wise to get context, I think I will read the entire ninth chapter of Romans and then we'll come back and look at the hard, hard saying that we're focusing on and that is verse 13. And so <clears throat> Romans chapter 9, uh, we just finished Romans 8, right, which is r really awesome. And, you know, what can separate us from the love of Christ, neither height nor depth or anything else on earth. And so now Paul kind of transitions and he talks about his fellow Jews. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. That's a pretty amazing statement, right? To say, and he, mean, and he prefaces that with, you need to understand, I'm not just saying this rhetorically. I mean it with my heart, my conscience. I wish I could go to hell if it would save my fellow believers, my fellow brothers, not believers, my fellow brothers and sisters in Israel, the people of Israel. So he really loves the lost, especially of the descendants of Abraham that are lost. And he goes on, he says, theirs is the adoption. There's the divine glory, the Shekinah glory that appeared in the temple. The covenants, right? The covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses. The receiving of the law. They're the ones who were given the privilege of getting God's own voice to tell them the Ten Commandments. The temple worship, the whole the beauty of that liturgy and all the promises, the promises, that belongs to the people of Israel. Theirs are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. So he just basically just explained a whole lot of privileges that the Jewish people have. All right. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor, because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So again, we're going to read it all, but I'm going to slow down a little bit and just make sure we understand these terms and phrases. So, <clears throat> not everybody who's a descendant is necessarily considered a child of Abraham, right? So just because you were a... Jew, a descendant of Abraham, biologically, that does not mean that it's you're one of Abraham's children in that sense, right? So his descendants, he says, on the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So the first case of illustration is Abraham had several sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and then other sons after that. But it was through Isaac that the promise would be given. And so there's a distinction. So God is, um, what, what I think Paul's trying to establish here is I really love my Jewish uh, brothers and sisters, but it's not God's fault that some of them are rejecting or rejected or rejecting him. Not everybody who's a descendant is in, is I think the basis we're building. Okay. 
In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So from a principle standpoint, biology is not the trick. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So that's a direct quotation from the three angels, the Lord and the two angels who visited Abraham before he went down and wiped out Sodom. And he promised that Sarah would have a son. And she laughed. Remember, she was in the tent and she didn't believe it. <clears throat> Not only that, so Isaac, right, Rebecca married Isaac. So not only that, Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a quotation from Malachi. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be claimed, proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, well, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Shall what it is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for disposal or refuse? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. You recognize these phrases from Hosea? When we looked at seeing Jesus in the story of Hosea, this is the names of Hosea's children through his wife of unfaithfulness. And so he named one of them not my people and he named the other one not my loved one. But later in the book, he does call them his loved one and calls them his people. And so there's a some sort of a redemptive turn. And so as he says in Hosea, I will call them 
my people who are not my people, and will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And again in Hosea, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will indeed be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. That's an interesting verse all by itself, isn't it? If God had not worked to create a remnant, to call out a remnant, we would have, even his own people, would have turned out like Sodom and Gomorrah and had been utterly destroyed by God. Okay, so I'll back up to that most difficult middle phrase, the one that's the focus for tonight. It's just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, which was Malachi's extension of the promise, the older will serve the younger. And so the, the angel or the Lord did not say it directly to Rebekah that I hate Esau and I love Jacob. The Lord said the older will serve the younger, but then the prophets later interpret that and expand that or, or restate it with the the statement, um, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated that. This is Paul quoting from the first chapter of Malachi, I believe. So my question for us tonight, what, what, what's that? Yes, God is the one saying Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Because God is the one who says that the Older will serve the younger. So this is God speaking. Yeah. And that's what and that's how Paul is using it. Because again, back in the, to get the whole context, um, we're trying to establish, Paul's trying to establish that not everybody who descends from Abraham is going to be saved. There's going to be a remnant. And so then he says in verse like, Yeah, before the twins, that's Jacob and Esau, before they were born or had done anything bad or good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. So this word election is sticking out right there. Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. In other words, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That's how I'm interpreting it. So then what shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. So God defends himself from our accusations. So this is obviously um, a hard saying because it, well, help me. Why is this such a hard saying? If, I'm sure you have friends and acquaintances who are, you are glad they're not here right now, <laughs> right? Why do we feel that way? What is, it, what, is the, what is it that wells up in ourselves, our natural selves, uh, or in the hearts of some people that makes this such a difficult thing? What would you say? And I want to make sure I get your voice because we're recording this. 
Well, the first response to it is that because it happened before they were born, it seems a rather harsh and without reason statement. It's just harsh. I mean, loved, it's so harsh to Esau, and yet, why? Really, why? Yeah, the why question. Someone else. Doug. In the New Testament, we're always taught that I mean, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. And uh, God would not reject anyone. But um, so I, I, I could hear people say that back to me. Yeah, we don't, we're not trying to resolve it yet. We're just trying to feel the tension. And so it feels like a, it, it crosses the whosoever will statement, right? If you want to come, you can, but it, this sounds like that's not true. Did I see your hand? Yeah, this is good. That he's no fence rider. He's either, you know, he's either for you or against you. Yeah, I guess that's kind of a interesting it's, it's part of what makes it frustrating and frightening, but it's also kind of encouraging that God does not hem and haw, right? He doesn't, he's not indecisive as a person. So it, it's, it feels, anyone else want to add to why it feels uncomfortable? Yeah. It just feels unfair. Like we're not supposed to have favorites. Yeah, it, that's exactly what it feels like, right? It just feels unfair. Why would you do that? Why would you say before they had a chance? In other words, why? Why would you pick Jacob? And it just seems so unfair that you would pick anybody. Donna. It seems to go against the teaching that we're supposed to love our brothers, love our neighbors, love our enemies. Uh, earlier in Matthew, it says if you, I think it's in Matthew, if you hate your brother, you, you've basically like killed him. So it's hard to think of God hating. And I have heard explanations that the word hatred doesn't really mean hate like we hate. It's like just preferred. I preferred one over the other. But looking at it, in the original language, I don't see that there because it's the same word that talks about enemies hating us. So I don't know where they got that explanation, but linguistically it doesn't play out. So we're still stuck with the fact that it looks like God hates someone. Unless you look at the fact that he knew ahead of time what Esau was going to do and Esau was not going to follow him in any way. Now we're trying to resolve it, yeah. Yeah, it, I hear what you're saying, and even if there were a way to diminish the word hate, it doesn't change the fact that it seems like there's some sort of favoritism being played, right? So it's a relative. So I think it's just, I, I'm glad that you've been, you've been really good at being honest about what it feels like it says and what it actually says. And it, and it, is, it is amazingly unfair, really, from a certain point of view. Say that it was, yeah, 
this is another, um, Chuck makes a good point. It's kind of an ironic choice because Jacob was really a rascal, right? He was not a good man and he, he deceived his father and stole his brother's birthright. He tricked his brother into selling him his birthright at another time. He lied and traded. The first time he encounters God when he sleeps in, on that rock and has the dream, he makes a deal with God. If you'll bless me and take care of me, then I'll come, you know, I'll give you a favor, a real, real sort of a manipulative approach to God. And yet somehow later in his life, he wrestles God in that, you know, on the way back when he's coming back and he's afraid of Esau and he's going to, he, everything's falling apart and he wrestles God. And uh, I've heard a, a really good message about how Jacob was always looking for somebody to approve him. Somebody, you know, he grew up with a dad who didn't like him, right? I, Isaac liked Esau because he was out in the field. And Jacob didn't have his father's admir, ad, ad, admiring, admir, what's the word? Admiration. Admiration. I could not conjugate that verb for a minute or whatever, or that, whatever that word is. Admiration. And so he and so he was trying to find somebody who would would affirm him and and make it okay. And then he finds this beautiful woman. And so uh, Rachel is his whole. If only she loves me, then I'll have everything. And so he's willing to work for her. And then that all turns all sour. And 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 nobody can ever bless Jacob enough to make him feel okay. And then he wrestles this representative of God by the river Jabuk and um, and he and he won't let him go I won't let you go unless you bless me and so there's this deep insecurity in Jacob's heart that finally gets filled when when God wrestles him touches his hip gives him pain marks him for the rest of his life and changes his name to Israel and that's a turning point in Jacob's life, but man, you know, he becomes a new person, but then he's still is full of all kinds of things, right? The favorite son and the whole Joseph story and oh man, but he finally gets it. So it is super sad, ironic in this context that God would choose him because Esau seems to be, we don't have as many details about Esau's life. <clears throat> So we feel the pain of this, this doctrine. And I want to kind of work through it with a series of uh, observations, if we would. And so I'll, I'll come back to these verses. But um, First of all, I want to say, uh, whoops, this is wrong. Okay. God's purpose in election. Did you catch that term in there? Did you catch that phrase in that verse? Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that. So there's a specific reason that God chooses Jacob and not Esau before they did anything good or bad. In order that God's purpose in election might stand. You see, God has, he wants it to be clear that his purpose in his electing grace is not by works, but by him who calls. 
it was really important for us, it is really important for us, for us to realize that there is nothing in Jacob that makes him a better pick than Esau. God's purpose has to be there for that, which is really amazingly scary, but also amazingly wonderful. Because Jacob didn't deserve it, he did get it by grace and grace alone. And so if you are in the family of God, there is nothing you did to earn that. And, and it wasn't, and Donna, you kind of went down the road that many do, and they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so I'm not going to condemn that point of view, but I don't personally agree with it, and I'm not saying you did. But one of the explanations is, well, God knows what's going to happen in the future. He sees the way that Jacob's eventually going to choose him, and so then he decides to pick him before it happens. And so that, that is a point of view that is God's foreknowledge, sees it will happen, and then he chooses those who will choose him. But that really goes against what God's doing here, because if that were the way it actually works, do you see how that violates this principle, right? If it's not by works, but by him who calls, if it were based on the fact that you would eventually say, Lord, please save me, that's a work that you would have done. And so his decision would have been based on your future work. And so your work of calling, that's why Ephesians says we're saved by grace through faith. And that is a gift of God. Even the faith is a gift of God. Lest any man should boast. You're not even able to boast about your decision to receive Jesus. He's the one who does the work. So I think it's really important to see that Paul's not shrinking back. The Holy Spirit is not shrinking back from the purpose in election, all right? The second one is that God is not unjust. We all feel like it's unfair. We do. And it would be, probably, for us, because we're creatures. But the Creator is not unjust. God is not unjust. And this, what I, I like about this is that Paul anticipates the very first question that you would ask. In other words, he's making an argument, and if he didn't mean to say what he was saying, he would have been surprised that we would have objected. But he knows full well exactly what he's saying, and he says, I'll know what you're going to say. Is God unjust? Right? Because what we just said is that before he did anything good or bad, it wasn't based on his merit. And Paul says, no. Not at all. It's not unjust. And then, so the very fact that he anticipates the question means, to me, means that the scripture is saying exactly what it sounds like it's saying. Now, how is it that God's not unjust, right? So I would say that the way to view this is that mercy is non-justice, but it's not injustice. It's not unjust, right? I'll back up to that verse again. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what is the just penalty for a sin for all people? Death and hell. So the justice demands penalty of death. God never washes away that uh, penalty 
arbitrarily and just says, okay, you don't have to die. No, he pays for it himself in the Lord Jesus. But he gives that gift to some he gives mercy. So God is not obligated to give mercy to anyone. But he has the freedom to give mercy. And so when God gives mercy, and when he gives compassion on somebody, he chooses to do that for reasons only he knows, only he has to answer for. Nobody else can make him hold accountable for that. So the point is, is that God is not unjust. He's just, there is a subset of in, of non-justice, which is called mercy. It's not unjust, it's mercy. It's a free and loving gift that is inexplicable. Think about that for a minute. God, in his mercy, chose me to be a believer. I didn't. That is, you want to say, I have never been so lucky in all my life. <laughs> but luck is the exact wrong word to use in a God-created universe, right? I've never been so loved. Not because I deserved it. And so it's an amazing gift to be one of the ones that God elects. All right. So mercy is not is non-justice. It's not injustice. So God is not unjust. The third observation I want to make is it does not depend on men's desire or effort. Right? So a human being's desire, so you can't even want to be saved without God's gift first. Your wanter is broken. You would never want to be saved. If God gave us exactly what we wanted, we would all want to have him not part of our life and that we would go to hell. That's what we would want. So God's choice doesn't depend on our desire or effort. That's what he says in verse 16. It does not, de therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy alone. So God didn't see, yep, some people will like me. Some people will want to be saved. I know they can't do it without me, but I'll give them the grace because they want to be. No, it's not even a want to be. It doesn't depend on our desire or our efforts. No matter how hard you try, it's not the reason God does it because of mercy. And for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So somehow, some way, God gives Pharaoh exactly what he wants. And because of it, Pharaoh fights God all the way to the death and dies and drowns in the Red Sea to God's glory because God gave Pharaoh what he wanted. And so um, he didn't give Pharaoh mercy. And God has that right. Which is the, um, the next thing I wanted to observe is, well, there's an expected objection. And we've already objected, is God unjust? Right? That would be their first objection. Now there's another objection. And that says, well, one of you will say, then why does God still blame us? Is it Pharaoh's fault? For who is able to resist his will? I mean, ultimately... Um, Pharaoh obeyed God's will just like Moses obeyed God's will. Apparently God's will can make somebody with mercy and some people without. Is that the answer? Why does God still blame us? 
That's a legitimate argument, right? That's a, that, but the very fact that this comes up, that Paul mentions this, illustrates, again, he knows what he's saying. He is saying it sounds like you don't have a choice. And his answer is the rights of a creator, right? The, the creator has rights that we don't have as creatures. And so when we try to judge God or hold him accountable, we're, we're thinking in a different realm. We're not in the same kind of reality that he is. He's self-existent. And Paul would say, but who are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? God shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? We don't have the right to do that. He has the right. And so again, Paul asks the rhetorical question, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for disposal or refuse? And so God, the almighty creator, can make one planet to, or one star to blow up and one star not to blow up or what he can do whatever he wants to do. And God has the right to make us some of us as objects of mercy and the rest of us as objects of wrath. Pretty, pretty heavy. And then I have uh, one more, I think, observation. Paul ventures an explanation. So he's, he's going to offer an explanation for why would God do it this way? Why would he do that? Why did God make a universe that's this way? And his explanation is just a guess because Paul doesn't know either, even though he's writing through the Holy Spirit. So this is probably the best guess we've got, but it's not, uh, he just raises a question. He says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, so he keeps his, his wrath and his power, he's going to show it to Pharaoh, I'm going to bring around his destruction. What if he did that? But he bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he's really slow about it? He could have destroyed Adam and Eve right then, but he bears with great patience. What if he does that? What if he slows it way down and does not bring his consequences, his just consequences, for a long time? What if he bears with great patience? And what if he does that? What if he did this, this patience? to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. So he can have mercy on who he wants to have mercy. And so he has mercy on Moses, and he does not have mercy on um, Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets justice. Moses gets mercy, and Jesus pays the price for Moses to get mercy, right? So Jesus pays that price. So God remains just. What if God did this to show Moses the glory of his mercy that he prepared for Moses, whom he prepared in advance of God, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? The point I think that he's making is what if God did this to show us the, how patiently he deals with the object of his wrath to show us how we deserve that wrath and don't get it, so that we can say, oh my, wow, look at the blessing that I've been given. Because it would have been one thing to just, 
you know, God could have um, made history instantaneous and could have called out from history those who he called and said, yep, you're saved, let's go to heaven, and you're lost, you're not, and we wouldn't have experienced any of this tension or any of this time lapse and all the things, and we would have never known how great that really was. And so somehow Paul is speculating that God is patient with his judgment on the wicked to show us the huge amount of mercy that we've been given so that we can we can even more be grateful for his love for us. So it's a pretty, um, it's pretty heavy material, but I think it's, uh, there's a lot of observations, and I, maybe the last thing is the, the emphasis on the amazing mercy of God. The point is not how mean God is or how cruel his justice is. The amazing thing is that God has mercy at all. Because what we did deserve was destruction. But God has mercy at all. And we are among those who were not his people, who by his grace are now called his people. We were among those who were not his loved one, and by his grace are now his loved one. And the beauty of being here by grace and grace alone is that I didn't do anything to deserve it. So I can't do anything to lose it. So I'm truly loved. And, and because I didn't do anything to deserve it, I can love you as a fellow brother and sister in Christ because there's nothing better about me than you. And I can even love a person who's lost and seek their salvation with all my heart and respect them as a human being because there's nothing intrinsically better about me than them. I just received mercy. And so I can beg God to give them mercy and I can pray and beg them to receive God's mercy. And so the, this, this is such a leveling thing. It makes us all so equal. I get to sit at the exact same table as Moses and Peter and Paul. There's no hierarchy in heaven because we're all purchased and given the exact same level of mercy. There's not, he didn't deserve more than I got. He didn't get more than I got. And so we get to be there with Mary and, and Ruth. They're, they're all, there isn't a hierarchy there. And so... This wonderful grace that makes me love no matter what is, is super, super amazing. So those are my observations about, um, I don't know if I have another copy. Yeah. So that's my list of things about the text. What is that? Um, what do you think? Any responses to that? I, I see some good. This could be a while because in my previous studies on Romans, this definitely talks about the sovereignty of God. It has nothing to do with the eternal destiny of Jacob and Esau. This is about two nations. God chose Jacob to be the nation through which his savior would, our Savior would come. Esau was the father of Edom, which became the enemy of that nation. But what he's saying is, I chose Jacob to have my seed come through him. And yes, it applies to us as individuals. We can still argue the election. God did choose me. For a long time I struggled with, well, why did, choose, why did God choose me and not my brother? Well, now my brother's saved, so I can't say he never chose my brother. But as it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated it, didn't have anything to do with his eternal destiny. It was my choice to use him. God is still sovereign and used him as we talked about the example of Pharaoh. Um, the ironic part is in the end, the nation of Israel rejected God's son, which 
helps us understand that even though God chooses us in our walk through life, we'll do things to reject God, but we're still saved and he's still sovereign. That doesn't change that. So I see what you're saying. I, I, I'm not sure that changing Jacob and Esau into nations instead of individuals. Okay, my turn. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that that takes away any of the sting of the meaning of the text. And it still boils down to individuals because it is still individuals who are elected or not elected. And so even though you're right that it's possible, I would say that this text does not rule out the possibility that Esau, the man, the individual Esau, may be in glory. That would be possible. I don't know what happened in the end of his life or whatever happened. But the illustration from the text is that God's purpose in election stands and his election is individual, not just national. And as far as the fact that you said that Israel rejected the Messiah, that is a true statement for sure. And there's huge consequences for Israel. But I would also argue that Romans 10 and 11 argue that the call is irrevocable and that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel, right? And so, so the nation hasn't been irrevocably, it's, it's been cast away. And again, Paul says there is a remnant. So there are some individuals within the nation who were called, Paul being one of them. For sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. So there was another hand up. So I think that was good. Um, I think that's a legitimate way to look at it, Larry. So I have tension on this passage. And like, there's, there's a part of me that I, I get the logic that Paul walks through and all of that. But like the tension for me comes in most in, in the, the verses that link to your rights of a creator passage, which, you know, Paul, what's the question that Paul asked? Um, how does he still find fault? And then the answer back is, who are you to answer back to God? And I, I feel like that's not an answer. And there's, and maybe it's the sin in my life that still that, that demands me to be, um, in, in an individual and have autonomy and I feel like I have the right to an answer because um, we go back down to what do I actually have any rights before God? N nothing. But I feel like it's a non-answer. For me, there's a great amount of tension. Why does God find fault? Well, who are you to say, talk back to God? I just asked a question. You know, like, there's, there's a... Tr t and I don't know how I would explain if... If my neighbor asked me, well, then how does God still find fault? I'm not sure that that would be an appropriate answer to satisfy my neighbor who's an unbeliever is, well, you don't have any right to ask God that question. He is God. And maybe that is, that is an answer. It is the right answer. Yeah, you get it. Yeah, to me, whenever, it just it really troubles me when you say, like pottery, well, pottery don't last forever. And, and then to say destruction, is there destruction? Is that the right word to be using in that? Because humans aren't destroyed, right? They're forever. They're eternal, right? It's not like 
I just really struggle with that. Yeah, I guess on that specific thing, the word for destruction wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me to view that a human being who lasts forever in hell is experiencing eternal death. And so even though you exist, I exist, a human being exists forever does not mean that they couldn't be described as the eternal death or destruction forever and ever where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. So, so I, I think that Paul's using the pottery thing as an illustration, not as a um, straight up um, allegory metaphor, right? He's just trying to say the potter, the creator has a different relationship with the creatures than creatures have with each other. And we need to, and for me, Joel, back to your question, um, you know, it seems like God is evading the question, like, who are you to ask me? Um, to me, it feels like Paul is echoing the discourse between Job and um, himself. When Job said, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. And in actuality, it probably wasn't fair. It was a test. It was a way for God to get glory out of Job's stand in spite of the fact that Satan ripped into him. So it wasn't really a result of Job's evil that he experienced the suffering. So it wasn't fair, but God didn't ever have to answer that part. He says, who are you? Where were you when I did it? And so part of what we as creatures need to come to is the realization that God gets to be God and do something that we don't can't do, and so this is where I would go to the um, the huge the hugeness the transcendent awesomeness of an uncreated being who never dissipates never changes. He has some prerogatives as a creator that we don't have, and we can't stand in judgment on him. And when we feel like it's not right like Job did, it's because we've not grasped who he is, and he gets to be that. And so I, I think that for the unbeliever, this could actually be, um, uh, how can I say, um, winsome, if you're a real honest skeptic. Because if God isn't this much in charge, then he isn't God anyway. You know what I'm saying? We are talking about the real God here. This is not a, a creature of our imagination. He's right. He's not being made in our image. We, he, this is who he is. And so he has the right to be of a order of magnitude more powerful than we are. Even, and so then that next step, even to the point where he can say that he's going to call you, but also say he's calling you and whosoever will may come. And so he's the one who reconciles what seems to us as being irreconcilable. How can they both be true that God is sovereign and man is free? The answer is God resolves that problem. And he says, whosoever will. And nobody has ever, see, this is the other, the assumption that somebody might say, well, I wanted to be a Christian, but God wouldn't let me. I really wanted to. And that, no, no, that could, that will never happen because anyone who wants to come Anyone who would say, yes, save me, please save me, I don't want to die. Whosoever will become is saved. And God is going to say, you know why you wanted to come? Because my spirit worked in your life to make you want to come. Because you would not want to come on your own. If you got what you wanted, you would not want to come. 
And so you need me to have mercy on you. So that's how you turn it back into, will you say yes? Because if you say no right now, then you're rejecting God's invitation. And so I think it's this, there's still the evangelical call. This. The other thing I want to say, there's a reason Paul put this in chapter 9 and not chapter 1, right? We established a lot of other things in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 that have to be there. And this is the realization for believers to understand that there wasn't something that I did to make him love me. And that's important for me to know as a believer. But it's not, it's out, when I'm an unbeliever, I need to understand the same thing. There's nothing in me that can make him want to save me. I need Jesus to save me. He's got to do the work. So I have a couple of ends here that I don't want to miss. You guys are doing great. Sometimes I kind of simplify as a Joel, and uh, you know, I, I think God is the father and me as the child, and I think of myself as a father and my kids, and there comes a point as a father that you know things and you do things for a purpose, but there's, you just can't explain to the kids. You know, why did you buy that Gibson guitar instead of this other one? Well, you know, there's a hundred reasons, but that there's no way you can get it to that level. And for us to think we're as smart as God that we can understand all this stuff is just heretical to me. I mean, God is sovereign. He knows things we don't know, and we have to accept that fact, and it's yeah, tough to accept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's better said than what I was trying to say. There is a theological understanding of the world, of the universe, that God has that I don't have, and I can't understand. And so even Paul, the great theologian, would say, maybe God did this this way just to show us how amazingly cool it is to be saved. What a blessing. Sue, and then Donna. Part of why it's troubling is just to see where it says God hated a person. I think, I think that we are, God is love. God loves the people. They, he wants all people to come to him. And so I think it just... Two things. One, one of the best answers I've heard <clears throat> about this God choosing one and not choosing another, the issue is not that God got to choose some and not choose others. The miracle is that he chose anyone because nobody deserved it. And when you struggle between so did we, is anyone who comes to Christ, anyone comes, is that is or is it God chose? And I think it's back to Dr. Mayers, who was the professor both and. It is both that anyone who comes to Christ and wants to will be accepted. And the other side of that coin is you were chosen. And somehow those two things work together the same way that Christ is God and man. Logically, that shouldn't work. You can't be two different things like that. But in God's economy, and because he is sovereign, he can do all kinds of stuff that our human logic can't figure out. Yeah, I, would, uh, I would modify that to the mysteries that we can't understand. They're not illogical in the sense that they're contradictory. They're just beyond our ability to comprehend it. In other words, Jesus isn't um, a contradiction. He's one person with two natures a mystery we can't understand, but we're not saying he's one person and two persons at the same time, because we're using a different word. We're one person, two natures. You follow, there's a subtle difference. I would just want to 
avoid the term illogical because God would, if, if that were true, if God could actually literally be illogical, then he speaks with a forked tongue. We can't ever trust him because we don't know. So he can tell us true things that we don't understand fully because they're mysteries. But that doesn't mean he contradicts himself. It seems contradictory to us because a mystery seems contradictory, but it's not actually a contradiction. Right. But I, I would still say, yes, they do fit in our logic. They just, beyond our ability to comprehend all of the mysteries of it. But it's, that's, a sub, that's a sub point that's a, a semantic. I don't mean to get on a sidetrack. Sue? Um, It must be really awful to look the crucified Jesus in the face and say, I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with you. I hate you. I'm glad you're dead. And many were. And that's the kind of evil that we were all capable of, and that's what we were trapped in. And that's the kind of evil that deserves hell. And so it is true that we, God is love, but because he is such perfect love, he can truly hate that which contradicts his love. You know, I have a, a child and I don't want them to go the wrong way and they choose the wrong way. I can hate those decisions. I can hate what that's doing. I can I, and almost the more I understand what good would be, the more I can hate the evil. You follow what I'm saying? So it must be so awful to to rebel against God. It is so awful to rebel that it that God can use the word hate and Himself not wince. We need to understand how awful it is, and um, therefore. It goes back again to how amazing it is that God changed me because that's how hateful I was of him. That's how much I deserved his wrath. I saw another hand back there. Sometime in my past, I, I heard that illustration like we present to, like Jesus said, go into the world and teach the good news. Um, you know, the, the on the say, whosoever will may come, like it's written on a door. And, um, and so you say, you know, and it's God, of course, that causes you to say, yes, I will. But you get in and then and you look around and then the other side of the doorpost or whatever, it's uh, the elect of God. So that you're really uh, grateful, you know, and, and God's power in that way and love. Yeah, it's, it's good to remember that you don't have to believe in this electing sovereignty of God in order to be in heaven. <laughs> you don't have to believe this first before you believe in Jesus. What you encounter as a human being is a conviction of your sin and a realization that you're in conflict with God. And you sense his outward, this outward prompting, not in your heart alone, but there's an outward person saying, you need to come to me, you need to say yes to me. And we respond to that person, yes or no. And if we say yes to him, we are saved. And so that is the experience of the unbeliever. And that's what it takes to be a believer. And you can be 
you can reject Romans 9. You can rip Romans 9 right out of your Bible and still go to heaven because you believe that Jesus saved you. This is, this is, this is critical foundational doctrine, but it's not the only, it's not a, um, the full understanding of Romans 9 is not a prerequisite in order for you to be a believer in Jesus. And so this is, it is, it can be thought of as whosoever will may come. That's your only experience of God on the outside. And you come in and realize, oh man, I was, I was called. You're here because God called you. Let's I see another. Yeah. I think on its own, this chapter is really difficult to understand. But put it back into context, especially after... Romans 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then he finishes Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing. And so that end of chapter 8 ought to fill us with a profound gratitude and awe. And then he comes into an explanation of there's nothing that you've done to merit this, and yet you are still an object of mercy. Because I, I would say, like you sort of say, the object, or Romans 9 is... You know, it's not 101 for the unbeliever, it's, it's 401 for the believer. Yeah. It's the context of who we are in Christ. There's no condemnation. Nothing's going to separate us. You did nothing to merit that. Celebrate and be in awe, respond in gratitude and praise and adoration that you're an object of mercy. And praise God that he is a God of mercy and praise God that he is a God of compassion. You know, I just sort of teaching myself as we talk through it to get myself out of the, well, I have rights. You know, you are the right of the creator, but I am the clay telling you that you're not satisfying. No, I, I really don't have that. How then should I respond? In awe and praise. Which after chapter 10 and 11, chapter 11 ends with, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, you know, who has been, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor that he should um, obey him or listen to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And so a right understanding here elevates your sense of worship, super elevates your sense of gratitude, reminds us to be humble. Because what if it really were true that there was something I did that made me the choice? What a horrible burden. I could lose it. Or... I would be proud, right? I could say, you know, if, if I'm, Larry, back before your brother was a believer, if you're a believer and he's not, and you have to explain that through what did you do? Why did you deserve it? it the, any answers to that question, why? Why you, not him? They would be reasons for you to boast. And, and the Bible is so clear. It's not by works, lest anyone boasts, right? So that no one can, it's, it's so that we can be truly 100% grateful. I did not earn it. And, it, and it, somehow God makes it all work out right. Somehow God is not evil for whatever happens to Pharaoh. And um, it's, it's his job. It's, his, it's him. Some. Well, I want to commend you all for being so sweet and kind. This is really a very difficult thing. And we can be on different places and uh, in different explanations, but um, you did really well. So any closing comments, everything all set? So.
Father, thank you so much for your mercy. May we be even bolder to share the gospel because we know your mercy is still being played out and that there are people who will respond, that your spirit will compel them to come in, as Jesus says in John 6, that you will compel them to believe. And so give us boldness to watch your spirit do its work, his work, and um, help us to truly um, live as those who are called. And in gratitude and humility. In, uh, in Jesus' name, amen.